This is Your Liturgical Bible, a Bible study series from Enacting the Kingdom. We believe that through community, ritual, and liturgy, the story of the Bible comes to life. Join Father Jeffrey and I as we learn to express the beauty of the biblical story together. Today we are going to plunge ourselves into the waters of death. The waters of death is our topic today. Uh, so, I mean, last Last time, we talked about the waters of life and everything to do with the waters of life. And that's all well and good. But water is not necessarily all well and good. It's a source of danger. You think of salt water. You can't drink that. That might kill you if you drink too much of that. Um, If you go out sailing, you might be in a shipwreck. You might go down into the depths of the sea uh, and drown. Uh, Still water that's not flowing could contain uh, death-dealing properties right uh we know now through microbes and all that kind of stuff things that aren't necessarily that good for you um but the ancients knew don't drink that still water that's got flies and mosquitoes and all that kind of stuff on it right um you drink that clean living moving water so our topic today is the the uh waters of death we're going to be looking at uh, Father Jeffrey, and particularly, I want to bring up Exodus chapter 15, you know, that story of the Israelites who go through the Red Sea. Uh, and, you know, the water stands up on either sides and they go through and then the water comes back and actually drowns the, t- the pursuing tyrant, Pharaoh. And, and then I want to look at baptism, right? And what does it mean that we get plunged into the waters of death, even though we've just prayed for this to kind of become the waters of life? So, of course, like all of these themes, you can't just cleanly separate these themes, but we're going to do our best to do that. Um, the waters of death being our topic. Before we dive into uh, Exodus uh, chapter 15, Father Jeffrey, is there anything you want to do to connect that waters of life to waters of death before we jump in? Just to reaffirm you know, what you've said so far, I, I mean, it, it's all of that kind of duality right all the way through it's never just a simple you know image and the same life same water that can give life can 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 deal death right so you get this imagery is used again and again and again i think of so many of those psalms that are probably not actually about water in a literal sense but they are you know clearly about all the things in life that overwhelm us that that bring us destruction and possibly death you know psalm psalm 60 uh 68 you know save me O god for the waters have come up to my neck i sink in deep mire where there's no foothold i've come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me right uh this probably isn't real water right because he goes on to talk about all the enemies that are seeking to destroy you know him more than the number of the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause and and so forth so th- this imagery that water is everything that can potentially deal us death that can cause us harm can bring us misery i mean the irony in, in psalm 69 of course is that even though the waters are overwhelming him his throat is parched, right? He's, he's thirsty. So there's this like real paradox at the heart of it. This can't be real water because he's, he's actually thirsty unless it's salt water, you know, as you said, um, so, mm-hmm. which can indeed induce thirst. But uh, so again and again and again, we get water that can deal an awful lot of harm. And yet water that, as we said in the last time, living water, the water that is ultimately the water of the spirit that brings us into union, you know, with God is the thing to, to be sought after. But yeah, I mean, water 
is not a an easy metaphor. It's not a simple metaphor, but it's it's one that that kind of has all this kind of duality and multivalence. You would say, you know, the kind of right, right. different meanings depending on on the context. But it's important that it resonates in in all of those ways as we go through and, and we pick up on it. So I'm going to make a claim here, and you can let me know what you think of it. So. Uh, this is the way that I sort of read the Bible. This is, you know, what we've been saying is we want people to come away from these episodes with a couple more tools in their biblical reading and liturgical experiencing tool belt, right? So when you come across a word like mountain or water, you have, uh, you know how to engage it, right? You know what, what images are supposed to pop up in your head. So when I experience the word water in the scriptures, one thing that I do is I think about water. Uh, one of the meanings that I draw out of that is that water is portrayed as the complete overpoweringness of nature itself, right? That um, it's the most powerful force in creation that, you know, you look out at the ocean and it's just so vast and beyond. It's almost transcendent in its vastness and depth, right? Um, that who could possibly control something that is so beyond the ability for any creative thing to control. And then when the scriptures portray God, they portray God as that person who actually sits enthroned above the waters or over and against the waters, who can control the waters, which is there's no, um, there's no greater way to accentuate the majesty and the transcendence and the glory of God than to say, you know, God is enthroned upon the waters, right? Or the waters saw you, oh God, they saw you and were afraid, right? Like the most powerful thing in the universe, water, saw God and was afraid, right? So, and I think that that's related to this waters of death, that that God himself even, even is the ruler of something as as powerful and strong as the waters of death. Um, so I just wanted to bring that up, but I'll let you respond to that, Father Jeffrey, if I'm sort of on the right track with that kind of thinking. Precisely. It's, you know, in the ancient Near East, it, one, the most powerful thing is water, right? It, it is the, the source of, of everything that, that, you know, the world consists of, right? It, it, they wouldn't have been able to say, you know, 71% of, of, of the earth is water. Um, they wouldn't have been able to calculate that, but they had some sense, as you say, that the, the deepest things are the oceans. The most powerful things are, are the watery storms that, that come upon people. And, you know, maybe they wouldn't have the evolutionary biological science to be able to say, well, all of life came out of this, you know, as we would be able to affirm today, but there's some sense in which they would have known that kind of instinctively in the way that the hymn of creation in Genesis chapter one reads, so much just comes out of the water, right? So there's the separation of the waters to, to have the dry land, but then, you know, the water is what brings forth the vegetation and, and the animals and, and, and so forth. And it's it, again and again. Now, in the ancient Near East, the, the various deities and demonic forces and, and, and sea monsters and so forth are all associated with that water. And they kind of rule over the world. But in the Hebrew understanding, in their encounter with God, they're able to kind of rework that so that it is, as you say, God who rules the waters. It's the most powerful thing you could say about God. If you want to say God is almighty, you say that he rules 
that water. He, he, he manages and organizes and controls that. And wherever that water is out of control or death-giving, we know that that's not of God, that something has gone wrong with God's purposes. And, and, and again, as we, we said before, human beings are involved and implicated in that going wrong, right? And so that you get these powerful images of the, the enemies of Israel being like the unruly or chaotic waters, you know, throughout the scriptures here. But God rules the waters. And so... As we said before, in the Gospels, it makes sense that some of the powerful imagery is that Jesus himself comes and puts those waters into their proper place. He walks over the water, he tames the storm, uh, and that's a powerful expression you know, of the same thing. It's not that the sea monsters who rule things, it's not the demons, it's not the gods of the, the pantheistic um, pantheons of gods and so forth, it is God himself, Yahweh, the true God of Israel, who rules those waters and puts them in their right place, ultimately in order to bring life, ultimately in order to be a source of that union between God and his creation. If you haven't yet become a patron of Enacting the Kingdom over on Patreon, you're only getting a small fraction of everything we're up to. When you become a patron for as little as $3 a month, you'll get immediate access to over 100 Patreon-exclusive episodes, weekly new releases, private live streams, and Patreon community events like Bible studies. And as we're social media free, Patreon is the only place to engage with us and others about these episodes. Go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom to join the growing community. You know, those stories of Christ calming the waters, walking upon the waters, calming the storm. There's no greater way of claiming that Christ himself is the embodiment of the God of Israel. Like, you know, in our, in our modern, our, we want the gospel of Mark to say, Jesus is God, you know, like use those words. Cause those are the terms that we have inherited from our Western culture. Like that's how we want the Bible to claim that Jesus is God. And if it doesn't use those words, then it, we call that into question. Our scholars have called that into question. And scholars have even called Mark really primitive, right? Very um, low Christology. But I don't think you can have a higher Christology than Christ calming the waters, right? Christ you know, stopping you know, the storm. You're, you're claiming that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is the embodiment of the God of Israel. Like it's, it's one of the most high claims you can give to Christ. But this is the problem we've evoked before, that, that modern human beings are separated from these fundamental images, right? That, and the way even devout Christians might read some of those stories, you sort of think, these are interesting tricks that he's doing, you know, uh, you know, what, what's this about? Oh, maybe it's just to prove this, that, or, or, or the other thing, or to impress people. It's not. I mean, this is the this is the way that in a culture where that's what water is understood as, that you express that God is almighty and Jesus Christ as God with us represents that almighty God, right? This is the way you would, you would tell the story, just the way the scriptures have told that story, you know, all along. So far from being just like side tricks, you know, sort of, you know, keep the, the disciples busy, you know, during Jesus's uh, earthly ministry or impress them or whatever. This is the fundamental imagery of, of God's presence and sovereignty, you know, over all the earth. And then another thing to, to kind of throw into here is that 
And we talk about these chaotic waters and the waters filled with with monsters and so forth and how that's associated with human rebellion and and sinfulness and so forth. Well, what do we get, for example, in the the book of Daniel? We, We see coming out of those waters, successive beasts, right, that represent the the various empires of the world, whether it's Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome, and the the people of Israel who are confronted, you know, with the successive sea monsters, which is the way you represent, you know, the these empires of the world of this present age and so forth. Well, when the son of man comes and puts those, you know, down, it, it is a, a subduing of the chaos of the waters, of the monsters that come from the deeps, right? So, I mean, it's all works together. So with Jesus who walks across the water, who calms the storm, who indeed casts, you know, demons into herds of swine and has them go catapulting off a cliff into the waters, into the abyss, right? I mean, this is all just telling that story in the most powerful way possible. It's not just you know, magician's tricks or something like that, that we might imagine, or indeed, you know, as you say, it's not about in any way undermining Jesus as God, because you haven't stated that in black and white. Well, you have stated it in black and white, because this is the language you would use. This is the symbolic vocabulary of, you know, a hu- fundamental human beings connected to what water is all about. In the story of Exodus, you have the Israelites who have left Egypt and they are then at the shores of the Red Sea. Behind them are the uh, Pharaoh and his army coming to annihilate the Israelites. So the Israelites are caught between death on one side of the, you know, the soldiers and the and Pharaoh. But on the, on the other side, death in these chaotic waters. And they're and they're like, okay, what are we going to this is a rock and a hard place. And God says, um, stand still and you'll see the salvation of God. Right. Don't do anything. Right. Uh, And then, of course, uh, uh, the 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 breath of God comes over the face of the deep and the waters are separated. And then the people go down into the depths of death. You know, they go into those depths of the chaotic waters and come out on the other side. But then Pharaoh and his chariots are. you know, the, the flood, I'm reading verse five of chapter 15, the floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. And then verse eight, at the blast of your nostrils, right? The, you know, the, the, your breath, your spirit coming out of you, O God, the waters, they, they piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. This image of God conquering those chaotic waters in order to save his people. But the people still, they descended into that into those waters not getting wet but into those waters and and coming up on the other side but the pharaoh and his soldiers didn't i think this is worth exploring what does it mean that god's people came through they went down into it and came out but then the powers that were chasing them didn't you know there's there's so many meanings going on here and i'm hoping we can draw out some of this stuff well the first thing that's being evoked here is of course those first verses of Genesis again, right? That, you know, how does God create the world? How does he bring all of what is in existence into being? Well, he separates the waters, right? And he forms this dry land, as I said in the last episode, that we need the dry land to stand on. We cannot live in the waters. The water brings life 
ultimately we need the, the the waters in order to to quench our thirst in order to live but we have to stand on dry ground right so we see again as you said that I mean that the you've all the same stuff you've got the chaotic waters you've got the spirit the breath coming you've got that divide division of the waters and the dry land this is just creation all over again right and for those who live i mean here's the the kind of moral of the story uh for those who live according to God's purposes, right, creational purposes, they will be given life. If you follow God, if you are still and you focus on God, and you depend on God, and you, you will realize God's creational purpose of having him be with you. Be still and know that I'm your God. I will be with you. I will look after you. And that's what the people of Israel experience here. The Egyptians who are minded to destroy, who are opposed and rebellious and who are bringing death and, and destruction on the world, for them, the same reality is experienced differently right? The same reality is, it's not dry land that they find ultimately, right? Uh, you know, read from Psalm uh, 68 or 69 in the Hebrew before about, you know, the waters that come up to my neck, I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. Well, this is what the Egyptians experience, right? It says in chapter 14 that the, 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 the chariots themselves get clogged down in the mud that is there. It's no longer dry land for them. It is the mud, the mire at the, the depths of the sea that causes them to, to not be able to progress or move forward, right? Because they've got the wrong purpose. They've got the wrong intention. And so for them, the same experience of coming through the Red Sea and the, the parting of the seas is going to be destructive because the water is going to flow back and and drown them, right? So I mean, it's, it's, it's not a pretty image here. This, this is powerful stuff. This is, this is primordial uh, imagery. Once again, it's the, the very image uh, of creation. You could actually say in some ways that the the hymn of creation itself is a reading back of, of this story, which is the foundational story of Israel, right? This is their experience of God. And so their ex they, that's the way they project back to the very beginning of Genesis. In fact, what we're reading in the verse verses of Genesis is the Exodus story in some ways, right? But it's this thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. God makes a dry place, a rocky place, a solid place, a fortress on which to stand for his faithful people. For those who depend on God, they will find him in that place. And that's going to connect, you know, later podcasts, we'll talk about mountains and, and solid places and places where God meets his people and so forth. Well, that's what he creates in the midst of the sea for them. But in the midst of the sea for the Egyptians, it is a place of mire and muck and clogging of chariot wheels and ultimately of drowning and destruction, because that's how they set about living. They set against God and therefore they were thwarted. And that as you were starting to read from Exodus 15, this beautiful hymn uh, of deliverance and salvation, possibly the very first thing that we have in the scriptures. It may be the oldest bit of all of, of the, the Hebrew Bible, because the, the Hebrew is much older than, than other parts uh, of the scriptures. It could be the very first thing that we have in all of, uh, all of that. And so, and it's this hymn of God who saves his people who are faithful to him in this moment and thwarts his enemies through the same water. And so we come, as you suggest, to baptism, which mm, is both death mm. and life. For those who go in with an intention of faith, with an intention of depending on God, of meeting God, of, of knowing God, of taking on the person, the image and likeness of God in themselves, 
it is life-giving. It looks the same, right? This is the thing. It's, it's frightening for some people who are not familiar with the way Orthodox baptize, right? It looks the same as drowning. Right, it's not, right. Right? It's not the same as drowning because it ultimately, it's, it, it's death to the old self. It's death to the Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the old Adam in us. And instead is, is the life of Moses, of Torah, of faithful covenant people of God. It's the life of Christ who ultimately takes up and fulfills all of that. That's what's happening here. But it is the Exodus story enacted again and again and again. And ultimately, all of life is that, right? If you set about trying to oppose God and you set about hate and violence and destruction and death and murder, then you will be drowned by this, the waters of life. If you instead Turn and orient your heart towards God, towards his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his, his expansive, generous love towards all of creation, then that's what you will experience, right? And, you know, C.S. Lewis has this marvelous image of the fact that for those who ultimately are experiencing God in that way, it was always that way, right? No matter what they went through, it was that, right? And you could say, that's what water is about. The same water is death. The same water is life depends on how you've oriented, you know, your life. So it's, you know, this is the powerful image of Exodus that is the kind of fundamental story of the whole Bible, because when Jesus comes, it's not to do anything other than to do the fulfillment, the renewal, the, the, the making permanent of the Exodus, right? When it's transfiguration, what's he talking to Elijah and Moses about? His Exodus, right? And so it's this story that is the kind of dominant and fundamental one of the whole of the Bible and the whole of our Christian life. If you are getting value from this podcast, please consider writing a short, positive five-star review on your podcast app. And even though we are social media free, there is still a place you can keep up to date with Enacting the Kingdom. You can join the email list by going to enactingthekingdom.com. And it's something we have to go through. Right. These we, these waters of death. And, you know, that that tool in our toolkit, when we come up with uh, images of people who go into water and then come out, I think one of the things that should come up in our mind is, is the word creation or perhaps rebirth. Right. Mm-hmm. Or new creation. Right. That it's after death that new life emerges. Right. And that's kind of the pattern of the universe itself. But. You know, when we read these passages, and, and, and that's true of the baptism as well. You descend into death and you come out again. And it's true of the understanding of, you know, I've, I've heard you talk uh, at length a couple of times about St. Ignatius, who talks about being, uh, uh, he, he's going towards his martyrdom, and he doesn't want the other people to stop him being martyred, right? Because he doesn't want to be stillborn. He wants to actually die so that he can then be born. And he is steeped in this image of the descent into death and the rebirth and the recreation, the new creation that happens after that. And it's something that we have to pattern in our own life. And, you know, baptism is obviously, Father Jeffrey, the kind of the the most palpable um, and embodied image of that, a liturgical image of that uh, pattern, isn't it? Certainly. And it's connected too to this activity of the Holy Spirit, right? So it's creation. So therefore you're expecting the Holy Spirit to be hovering, to be, to be entering in, to be flowing out, to be overwhelming. And so what also happens at baptism, we are anointed with the chrism that is the, 
sign, the tangible sign of that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the, the, the fulfillment of God's purposes by our own sharing in his spirit and in his life. And, and so that's a key part of, of the water image here as well, that, that water, that living water that comes to reverse the, the destructiveness of, of water is actually the presence of, of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, in some ways, this then connects us to Pentecost, right? And to that outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that, you know, water divided, you know, which was a key part of creation in a way that the, the division of the waters to create that solid and, and, and rocky place, the, 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 the dry place where we could stand. It also comes to mean the division of humanity, right? The waters that, that, that are in Eden, in paradise are the waters that give life, but when they flow out into the world, it's, it represents the kind of division of the nations, right? And so part of the, the waters of death is the water that divides, the water that, that takes us away, you know, from, from God. And the imagery that we get in the prophets, finally, about what it's going to be like in the end is that that water is that div divided water is going to be reunited. There'll be that water that, that means it's either the, the, the image that comes down out of the mountain of God and heals the nations, but you also get this strange imagery about the water that flows back up as the nations flow to the nation, to, to the, to the mountain of God and come to worship him in, in, in that final, you know, beautiful image of, of the gathering of the nations, the acknowledgement of, of God as King, King of all and that healing and the banquet and so forth. Well, it's like the, the, the nations flow back, right? So the, the waters that were divided, and you sort of think, you know, how that, that in a way mirrors the imagery of, of Babel, right? The, 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 the dividing of the nations. Well, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the reuniting of all of that. All that is divided will be, will be shown to be united again in the worship and love and peace of, of God himself. And so that's also the baptismal imagery of, you know, the Pentecost that comes to each of us in our chrismation that ultimately unites us together in one body of Christ, anoints us for the work of the kingdom. And the baptism of Christ, you know, this other scriptural account that's in all four of the gospels, you know, where Christ himself, when he comes as a human, he descends into that water as well and, and ascends. And he is, in his life fulfilling that pattern you know he's he, he, and then after that in the transfiguration they say you know he they talk about his exodus right so there's something you know even how, how great and magnificent that story of the baptism is descending into the waters and coming up it's still that image of that thing to come right which is ultimately death and a resurrection but all four of those gospels point to that as kind of the beginning of christ's ministry which reflects also that story of israel who descends and who, who descend into the waters and come up again. And, you know, we ourselves as Orthodox Christians go through that pattern where we descend and we come up again. Just that story of the, the, the baptism of Christ when seen in that light, right? As seeing, you know, it's a reflection of that story that Christ inherited in his culture and in his heritage of the people of Israel, but also looking forward to how those people who will attach themselves to Christ, to Jesus as the Messiah themselves will also go into the waters and come up. It's, it's the, the word that's coming to mind is rhyming, 
right? It's, it's mm-hmm. these patterns rhyme over time, right? It's, it's, it's different, but they're all the same, right? There's this rhyming of this pattern. Yeah, it's a kind of resonance across all of, of the, the narratives of scripture. And, and it's not surprising then that immediately after his baptism, where does Jesus go? Into the wilderness. For how long? For 40 days, right? Which mirrors what Israel does after the passing through the, the waters of, of Exodus. But of, Jesus of, of remains faithful, faithful, you know? But he uh, remains faithful. Yeah. He fulfills it, which is why his encapsulation and recapitulation is the permanent one. This is the new and final, you know, Exodus. But of course, all that is then just the foretaste, the foreshadowing of his own death and resurrection, right? Because when he's talking to Moses and Elijah about his Exodus, he's not just talking about going in what he's already done, going into the, the waters of the Jordan and coming out and going into the wilderness. He's talking finally about that perfect exodus which is his death his descent to hell and his rising on the third day his ascension into heaven by which all things are are kind of fulfilled and what all of god god's plans and purposes for creation through those things they are fulfilled so to uh to encapsulate this episode though that tool in our tool belt when we're reading the scriptures when we're seeing this embodied in our liturgies you know the, the thing that comes to mind that, you know, that should roll into your mind as you're reading about waters, especially the waters of death or things that uh, is this idea of new creation, you know, that we're going to go down into it and come back up again. Was there any other uh, image that you feel Father Jeffrey should be on the minds of readers and of um, liturgical experiencers uh, as these uh, as these images pop up? Not really. I mean, the, 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 we could go on and on, but I think oh, yeah. those are kind of the, the the key key themes here to to evoke. I mean, take these two episodes together: waters of of life and and death. And I mean, I would welcome uh, our listeners to kind of feedback some of the discoveries that they make because it it really is quite a. Um, joyful way of reading the scriptures to kind of have these images just kind of rattling around in our hearts and minds as, as we go through and you say oh look now now we find it again because I mean as I say we go on and on we could just go into the prophets now and read Isaiah you know and every chapter of Isaiah has something about waters of life and death uh, but I hope our, our listeners are are encouraged and empowered to to do that sort of thing and I would look forward to hearing back from them once they make those those joyful discoveries themselves and just see how this imagery plays again and again and again throughout the scriptures thanks for listening I'm Father Yuri Gladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning, and I'm joined on this show by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Come connect with us on Patreon with any thoughts and follow-ups about this episode. We look forward to seeing you next time.